Thank you, David, Alicia, and Paul. You put a effort in today with all your uh, extra duties. Good morning again. I hope you've had a wonderful week. Good to see you all here this morning. Although we have a number of people away, and I'm hoping they're uh, they're okay. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 to 8 this morning as we uh, go back to a, a series that we commenced a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, we had a bit of a, a break from it uh, last week with the, um, the conference sermon, but um, we're looking forward to uh, continuing this one over here. I am anyway. I hope you are too. It's about the apostles. So this series is about the, uh, the lives of the apostles as we, as we found it written in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Let's read uh, verses 1 to 8 this morning. And it's Matthew, not Mark. And I, I got that one right this time. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. When he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles or into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for this morning's sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word, which you have promised that you would preserve for us, and indeed you have, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can rely upon its words, we can rely on its truthfulness, and we ask now that we would trust it once again, that the Spirit would be working in our hearts, unhindered, unfettered, and that our hearts would be open to this truth that you would have for us today. Father, I pray that you would use me to convey this truth. And Father, I pray, more importantly than anything else, that we would not only understand this truth, but Father, that we would apply it to our lives. Father, help us to become the people that you would have us to be. We thank you for calling us, for saving us, and we pray that you would empower us for your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I remember... When I was in year 11, at, uh, I went to St. Bernard's College. You know where St. Bernard's College is over there in Essendon? Yeah, all boys college. Used to get up to a whole lot of mischief. I think from year nine onwards. I don't know how much work we did, but we didn't do very much in, in uh, many cases. I remember there was a particular uh, class that uh, I sat in, which was a physics class. Um, and there was a lovely old uh, teacher that we had. I think he must have been about 70 years old. Right? I think he'd been preaching for the 1950s or whatever, but he was a lovely old guy who never minced his words. He knew exactly what to say at every, at every time. And we had rows of, of, of tables. Um, so we had two tables. So there was a, a centre, like, a bit like this, the church. So you had a table, a table, a table, and then two students on each side. And I remember for a particular class that we had, I was sitting next to someone on this side, and there were two other guys over the side over here. So, and these two fellows were always getting up to mischief. They were doing silly things while he was teaching at the front and he was about this far away. He'd be talking and writing on a board and, and they'd be there giggling and doing stuff and, you know, trying to distract 
me and, and everyone else at the same time. And I remember there was, there was one time um, when he turned around and he, he spotted them. And he, he pointed his finger to the one who was the, uh, the, the instigator. And he goes, what's so funny about what I just taught you? And the guy goes, uh, 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 he didn't know what to say. Like He was like, completely flabbergasted. And to which point the actual teacher said, I'll tell you what's funny. He goes, what's going to be funny is that when everyone's graduated from this class and they're on the, on, in lines looking for work and applying for work, the only place you're going to be applying for work is at the CES, which is the unemployment line, right? At which point his friend turned to him and laughed, like, ha, ha, ha. And then he goes, and you'll be behind him. <laughs> they never did graduate. <laughs> they didn't pass. So this, this, uh, this old teacher knew they dropped out before the actual, uh, the end of the actual thing. And, was, and I think he knew something that the rest of us didn't. Uh, he had the experience. He probably knew that they, they, they weren't putting in any effort. Their heart wasn't in it. So, so he realised, and I think he was basically telling them what was the obvious. Um, and in a sense, it was probably a shame for them to be spending time learning something they would never use anyway or didn't care about. Because in the end, it wasn't going to be any worth to them. It would have been better if they dropped that earlier, gone and done something that they probably liked. Um, our focus over the uh, coming weeks will be about the lives of the apostles. And, and the reason I brought up that particular story is that the, we see it, uh, a, a transition which takes place in these people's lives. Um, they, you know how Jesus called each one of them personally? He called them all by name. And he said, come and follow me, come and follow me, come and follow me. Every one of them, he actually called, okay? And they said, yep, I'm coming. They all said, they actually dropped their nets, they left their tax collecting tables, they left all, whatever they were doing, they left it and they said, I'm going to choose to follow you. At which point, we call these people disciples. And what this passage we're looking at now, what, it, what the main message of it is, is it shows us the transition from being a follower and as disciples, they were following Jesus, trying to imitate Jesus, learning from Jesus. He was teaching them. He was their master and their guide. Okay? This is the way you learned in those days. If you wanted to go to the, a college, you would have a master. He would tell you what to do, how to do it, and then you would learn to imitate him and learn everything from him. At which, po at which point, when you graduated, you could then have students of your own, or which you do the same. So... We are looking here at the transition the apostles take when they, get to, when they get to a point where Jesus says, now you're ready, now I'm going to send you out. So they graduated from that point of view. They actually got to the stage where Jesus was confident enough to send them out by themselves. They had watched what he'd done, they'd seen, and at which point the Bible calls those people apostles. They changed from being disciples to being disciples, because they never stopped following Jesus, to apostles, the sent out ones. So what we're talking about here is graduating and actually putting the effort in and then being sent out. Because the purpose that you go to school is so your level of education gets to a point where you can actually go and get a job and, and you're qualified to do something. Um, and these people actually did that. So we'll be looking at 
over these coming weeks, how Jesus trained them, how he raised them up um, to a level of responsibility that he trusted them to carry this message, this important message we call the gospel to the entire world. As men who walked with and talked with and ate with uh, Jesus, the apostles, the apostles had an amazing privilege. Can you imagine being taught directly by the Son of God? I mean, I think every one of us, if we love Jesus, if you had an opportunity to drop everything you have and say, no, I'm going to actually spend the next three years with him, I mean, which of us wouldn't? And they had an amazing, an amazing uh, privileged position. They were taught directly by him. He was the best teacher the best leader in every possible way. They, they would have observed miracles that, that most people would only dream about. We read about, but imagine seeing them in front of your eyes. Um, they witnessed his grace. They witnessed his love. They witnessed a perfect relationship that he had with God the Father. He was a perfect example. But we discovered also a couple of weeks ago that with this privilege, with this ability to be able to see all these things and hear all these things and be part of all these things, there came a responsibility. People don't entrust you with things like that without it coming with some sort of responsibility. And, the, and the, one of the scripture verses that, I, that I, I brought up a couple of weeks ago was, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of them they will ask the more. So with the knowledge that they had, they would bear the charge to keep that which was committed to them, to live it fully, to proclaim its message, to record the words that we find that that was their job, to record those words they'd heard from Jesus to, to ha- so we could have them today. They would teach the next generation. That's a pretty big job. That was a big job. But they graduated. They did what they had to do. They were faithful in their calling. And the reason we can sit here today, or part of the reason we can sit here today and enjoy reading the word of God, which we trust every word in, is because they were faithful in what they did. They fulfilled their obligation. And I asked us to consider our own privileged position two weeks ago. I asked us to look at what privileges do we have that other people don't. And if we looked at our wealth our freedom, our resources, our simple salvation that we enjoy and what we have. Um, If that was any indication, then the Lord expects great things from us. And we needed to be aware of that. With privilege comes responsibility. In God's kingdom, it's true. And I asked us how we matched up. Do we understand or did we understand that we have been given much and therefore the Lord will require much? And it would be wise of us to understand and accept this concept now rather than wait to get to heaven when we can't do anything else, when it's all been done and dusted. So my challenge to you two weeks ago was demand of yourself exactly what the Lord expects of you today. Demand it of yourself. If the Lord expects you to do this or that or to be this way or live that way, demand the same thing of yourself. Don't Give yourself an excuse not to live up to his expectations. Because if we we choose not to live up to his expectations, whose expectations are we living up to? Our own? Or the world's? Or our parents? Or our worldly teachers? If we're not living up to his 
expectations of us first, then really what are we living up to? What standards do we set ourselves? We then looked at how Jesus trained his disciples. He taught them by example. And we often fail at that, don't we? He demonstrated how things were to be done. He then instructed them and showed them. After that, he showed them what it was like to live in this particular way. He instructed them and showed them about the desperate need that was in the world in those days. He said, the harvest is white. Look at it. And he's saying he probably pointed to all the people that were there and said, look at these guys. Look at these people. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost. They are, they are ignorant of their own position and their own desperate state. Look at, look at this. And then he asked them and he said, pray that God would send out people to, to reach these people. Pray that God would send out his laborers because these people are desperate and they don't even know it, how bad they are. And he said, pray for that. And the funny thing was, and we looked at the transition from chapter 9 to chapter 10, because after he called them to pray that God would send out these laborers, he said the very, the very next verse, he says, and he called them to himself and said, time for you to go out. So in essence, they, they became the answer to the prayer and the answer to that particular need. They would be the ones who would be sent out to reach the lost. The answer to our own prayers I challenged you with last time is often found by our response to the Lord actually calling us to action. Sometimes the desire that God puts in our heart to pray for something is actually a desire he puts in our hearts to answer that need. But too often we say, oh, that's someone else's responsibility. Maybe that's Pastor Frank's responsibility or Miriam's responsibility or someone who's got a lot more experience than me. But maybe the, the desire that God puts in our hearts or the burden that, that he puts in our hearts for someone or something, maybe he's actually telling us to go and do something about it. And we're finding an excuse not to actually answer that call ourselves. But if we believe that we've been given much and so that much is expected of us, then it follows that the first thing we should do is to first of all ask, all right, God, what do you want me to do about this? Before I even pray and say, God, I want you to answer that prayer, the first thing would, would be, God, what do you want me to do? I know there's a need here. What can I do to help this situation? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 as we look at an example of that because I think it's an important point for us to understand. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 says, Then said I, this is Isaiah speaking, he had just seen a vision of the Lord in heaven. He saw God sitting on a throne and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims, that, that's a type of angel unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the, with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, 
here am I, send me. Yeah, Isaiah sees this. God opens up the veil. God opens up uh, <laughs> the dimension between heaven or the, the, the physical realm and, and, and heaven. And he actually sees God sitting on a throne. I mean, that, that would have been an unbelievable uh, sight. And the first thing that he does is that when he sees God on the throne, he recognises his own sinful state. This is a prophet. He recognises how sinful he actually is before God. And he recognises even more what sort of a sinful society he's living in and how, how rebellious the people, his own people, have been toward God. And he says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm living in the middle of a people of unclean lips. I've seen God. You know, you know that word, woe is me, for I am undone? Um, ever had your knees knocking together because of some fear? Ever been so um, paralysed by something that you didn't know what to do? That would have been the fear that would have come upon Isaiah. His knees would have been knocking. His heart would have been thumping out of his chest. And he says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm a goner here. So God finds a solution for that. And he sends down that angel and he cleanses the sin from Isaiah. He finds a solution for the problem that he had. And the Lord then says, who am I going to send as a labourer into this field? Who am I going to send to represent me? to share my message, to teach these people about what their true state is. And the amazing thing is, is that once Isaiah realised that his sin had all been cleansed, he became all of a sudden very bold. And he said, pick me. Here I am. Send me. I'm the one. I'm ready to go now. You've made me worthy. You've made me, uh, uh, you gave me, you've given me now the, the, the ability to do that. You know, if, if there's anything, you know, there are many, many proofs of the, um, of the Trinity in the Bible. Many, many proofs. But what's funny, this is one proof of the Trinity in the Bible. Now, the Trinity is that God is three in one and one represented in three. But if you look at this verse, in verse eight, it says, Whom shall I send? How many people are talking there? One. Who will go for us? How many people are talking there? <laughs> us. Is plural, but it's one, and it actually shows you what's going on over here. God is saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He's not talking about the angels here. He's talking about himself. So God represents always himself in a plurality in unity, always. Straight from the, the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end. The point here, though, is Isaiah's response. He says, here am I, send me. Isaiah was willing to answer the call to a desperate need. And so did the apostles. Jesus says, you see that need out there? And they said, yeah, we can see it. Go and pray that someone would be sent for that. And the next, the next minute he's saying, all right, you guys go out. And they said, okay, we'll go. We'll, we're willing to do it. In the same way, we have been called to the same work. Did you know that? We have been called to the same mission. 
Yes, we are all disciples of Jesus. If you are a Christian today, you are a disciple of Christ. But did you know you've also been sent out? We have been sent to this world. That's why the Bible calls us ambassadors to this world. We are ambassadors of Christ. We represent him in a foreign country. We have a message. There is a definite need in our society. Nothing has changed. The field is still white. In fact, the field is dying. If it was white then, it's, it's withering now. There is a desperate need. And we've been called and equipped. You see, Isaiah saw his only um, problem with representing God was his own sin. And if he dealt with it with Isaiah, he's definitely dealt with it with that problem with us because he paid for all of our sin and Jesus died on the cross for our sin. So there is nothing stopping us. There is no excuse that we can have. There is no barrier that should um, cause us not to follow the command to go out into this world and be the people he has called us to be, to share that gospel message, to live it, to be the lights that God wants us and expects of us. The only question for us is, do we have the will to answer the call of Jesus to be the lights in this world? Do you and I have the will? And if we don't have the will, then we're not fulfilling our obligation. You can follow Jesus or you can say that you follow Jesus. But if you never go for Jesus, then it's a bit like those two guys who were sitting in a classroom always learning but never graduating. Now, how would you be being a student sitting in year 11 or year 10 for the rest of your life? Would you expect that to be normal? Yet there are so many Christians who are sitting in a classroom their entire lives and never, ever are willing to go out of that classroom because there's no safe in the classroom. There's someone teaching me. I can have a bit of a giggle every now and then. I can actually, I can, I, I'm protected. But I never have to face the world. I never have to go out and trust that God will actually lead me in the world. There's no risk with being stuck in a class for your entire life, is there? But then again, there is no benefit to it either. So the cruel question is, if there is a need, and you and I are convinced of that need in our society, are we the ones who would be willing to say to the Lord, here am I, send me. Are we willing to do that today? Today, not tomorrow. Let that burn in you a little bit, that today. Is there any sense of anxiety you get when I tell you you should be doing that right now? There should be a bit of anxiety. Because he sent them out two by two, by themselves, without him to be backing them up. And he said, don't even take anything with you later on. Don't take any money. Don't take any extra coats. Don't take anything at all. You are going to have to trust me when you're out there on your own. But understand you're never on your own. Are we willing to do that? The disciples of Jesus answered the call to follow Jesus, but they were also willing to go for Jesus, to preach the gospel, to represent Jesus to the lost people in this world. And this is what we see, the transition that takes place in these men's lives. Turn back with me to, to verse 1 in chapter 10 of Matthew. We'll read the first five verses again. It says there, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power 
against unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter you not. There comes a time when training turns, must turn into action. These men you will notice, look at verse 1, were given a special designation, a special name. They start, it starts off in verse 1 and it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples. And then in verse 2, now, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Why, why did he change the name? Well, it was as simple as they went from being followers <coughs> to the ones who were being sent out. <coughs> and then it says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent forth. Jesus was essentially guiding, teaching, growing his disciples from being simple followers to leaders. They never stopped following Jesus as we, as we never stopped following Jesus. But now they were called to take his message to the lost. He expects the same thing from us. There is a transition required of us. We make the choice to be saved in Christ. Yes, we all know the judicial result as in law. We know the judicial result of what was done for us when we, when we are saved, which we enjoy now. It says that we, the Bible says that from a judicial point of view, God paid the penalty. He paid the fine. The Lord Jesus Christ paid all the, all the results of our own crimes against him. And it said that we are free to go. So just like a criminal who presents himself in front of the court, who is guilty... There is no, no case that he can muster. There is no argument he can muster to save himself from this position. The fellow's guilty. There's way too much evidence. And so all he can do is throw himself at the mercy of the court. And we did that. And God said, okay, as the judge, and God is a perfect judge, he said, I've paid the fine for you already. You're free to go. That's what happened to us from a judicial point of view where we should have been locked up in a slammer, locked up in jail and prison forever. That's how, that's how guilty we were before God. God said, look, I sent my son to go and take care of that thing for you. He paid the price already for you. So we're free to go. So we are not, we are not destined to go to hell. And the Bible says that we are saved to heaven We also know that we have ultimately been saved to, and that is, heaven. The most troublesome problem we have as Christians, though, is All right, I've been saved from hell. One day I'm going to be in heaven. The big question that we fail to answer in our own minds sometimes is, and things that vexes the average Christian is, what purpose have I been saved for now? What purpose have I been saved for now? What is my purpose now? For what reason has God saved me and left me here? Do you understand what I'm asking? He could have taken us away with him immediately. Why did he leave us here? 
Well, one possible answer to this can be found in the change that occurs in the lives of the disciples here. When they go from disciples to apostles, from followers to ambassadors, from students to teachers, from observers to performers. This is the change that occurred in these men's lives. And I believe with absolute certainty, this is what needs to occur in us. This is what should happen in us. We have to make that transition in our lives. We can't just be people that sit in a pew on a Sunday morning service. There is much more expected of us. God does not expect... He does not expect us to be people who come on a Sunday to church. And then after we leave the church, we say, fulfill my obligations for you this week. Now let me get back to the real world. Now the real world is God's world, not, our, not, not what we see around us here. Not our own careers and our own desires. This is the transition God wants to occur in all of us. Not that we will be called apostles, but as disciples we must allow following Jesus to equip us for living for the Lord. That's the purpose of being a disciple. You don't become a disciple just to keep on following and don't do anything your entire life. The purpose of being a disciple, of being a student, is to learn so that one day you can put those things into practice and you can begin to teach others as well and draw more people to the Lord. Learning to trust in his power and grace in our lives is absolutely important to meet the challenges that will come against us. In order for us to do this, in order for us to move from one phase to the other, and believe me, this, is, this happens on multiple levels in our lives. It doesn't, this is not something like when you get saved. I'm unsaved, and then I get to a point and I say, I'm saved. It, that's a one-time transaction that happens. That brings you into the kingdom of God. This is not like that. This is where we become, we are students and followers of Christ our entire lives. But more and more, he sends us out with every time we pick up a new ability, a new gift, a new, new knowledge. He sends us out more and more and more. We always stay following because we always want to be learning. But we are more and more actually going out to bring more people in. We cannot spend the rest of our days being simple students without putting what we've learned into practice. We must set our goals to be as he is. That's the goal of every disciple, to be like their master. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. Our goal should be to, to be as he is, to do what he says, to live as he would live in this world, and nothing less than that. Don't allow yourself, and don't let the devil, and don't let your flesh ever convince you that you should be aiming for anything less than being exactly like Jesus. A friend of mine recently sent me a, an email with an attachment and we, we often converse together. He's a, he's a Christian. He loves business though. He travels around the world and he has, he has multiple businesses that he runs at the same time. Very successful fellow. And every now and then, because he knows I'm still involved in business, he sends me videos which he thinks I'm going to enjoy. <coughs> so he sent me a, a video which lasted for about half an hour and this video was about achieving your goals. Any, any, anyone seen videos like that before? Like how to achieve your goals and how to be successful in life. And there are plenty of things floating around like that. So, I mean, so when someone sends me something, I generally try to at least appreciate what they've done. So I watch it and give them feedback. 
This, this particular video was about a 12-step program to achieving your goals in life and setting them and, 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 and achieving success in those areas. And some of the, some of the things were, were these, and I'll share them with you. It says, uh, he said that achieving your goals takes hard work and long work. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Practice is all important to winning and succeeding. Yeah. Great success requires that you prepare, prepare, prepare. I would agree with that too. Then he gives, he gives a number of steps. So he says, if you want to achieve a particular goal in your life, doesn't matter what it is, it could be trying to save money, trying to get earn a, a new position or new, uh, a new position at work, or you're aiming for a particular career, or whatever else it is. There are plenty of things that we do in life. You want to graduate from a particular college, or you want to graduate from school. There are goals you have to set yourself. And he says this, this is some of the points that he has. And you think about these in your mind and whether they make sense or whether they don't or whether they're over the top. He said, decide exactly what you want in a certain part of your life. And that might be whatever we've said. Imagine that there was no obstacles to getting you there. Don't let fear or failure hold you back. Ask yourself, what do I need to do to reach this particular target? And then take the first step. Is that fair enough? So don't let, if you want to be, I don't know, anything, a bus driver. Right? You want to be a bus driver. You love people who drive buses and you love buses. Right? Let's say you want to be a bus driver. He says the first thing you need to do is to actually think about, all right, I want to be a bus driver. I'm not going to let my whatever it is stop me, but I want to be a bus driver. What do I have to do to be a bus driver? And it may be you have to have a special license or you need to have a certain amount of experience on the road or you need to be doing A, B or C, whatever else it may be. Okay? He then he said write the goal down. Set a deadline for yourself, a reasonable deadline, and break it down into how you're going to get there. There may be a course you have to do. There may be certain licences you have to have. So he says, find out what you have to do and then write a goal. All right, by this date I want to try and get this, and by this date I want to try and get this, and by this date I think I can achieve this. Does that make sense so far? It does to me. It sounds like a fairly, fairly simple thing. He then says, um, identify whatever obstacles you may have ahead of you. So what problems do I have or what, what things are going to maybe get themselves in the way? And he says, um, look at those and, and, and find out what you need to overcome those obstacles. Maybe you have a problem. Maybe you're not a very good driver. Maybe you're not a good driver. You might have to say, all right, maybe I have to do some more lessons in driving or maybe take a few more lessons and become a better driver before I can kill 50 people on the bus. Right? So you... I'm, I'm, what I'm saying to you is he's saying some very obvious things over here. Look at the obstacles, work out you know, what might stop you. Then he says, identify what knowledge you need to achieve your goal. Work out what you need to learn to get to where you want to get to. Do I have to learn something else that I don't know just yet? And then he says, identify the people who can help you to get there. So who can teach me these things? Who can I lean on with their experience? Then he says... Uh, make a list of what you need to do to achieve your goal and make a plan, a simple plan. Select the most important thing you need to do first and start with it. Don't put that last. Do the important things first and that will give you the best result. And then he says, develop a habit of self-discipline. Be disciplined. Understand that when you want to achieve a goal, there are some other things you need to sacrifice. Is that right? And then he says at the end, remind, keep reminding yourself about what, what it would be like to achieve your goal. Think about it. Think about it. If I want to be a bus driver, and that's what the, the love of my, that, that's what I think is the, the best career, he goes, think about 
what it would be like to actually be driving a bus. Because if you forget the, the point of what you're trying to do, if you get it, if you forget it, you will lose, easily lose your direction with the whole thing. So most of these sound to me, sounded fairly reasonable things to do to try to achieve a particular goal. It can be applied to anything, really. And I responded to my friend, thanking him for the video, but also said that it made me sad. The video made me very sad, to be honest with you. Because the one thing it also did is that it highlighted for me the failure of most Christians to set themselves any goal for their spiritual walk. I see people having goals all the time for everything in the world. This is the job I'm going to get. This is the thing I'm going to learn. This is the education I'm going to, I'm going to uh, acquire. This, this is what I'm going to save and this is what I'm going to organise. And, and we organise so many things in our lives. A lot of planning goes into them as well. From what cars we buy, what houses we buy, what, uh, what insurances we're going to have for our houses, what savings plans we're going to have. We organise our holidays. We put a lot of effort into them. We do so many things where we set a goal and then we work out, what am I going to do to achieve my goal? But can I ask you a question? How much effort do we do for the Lord? What goals do we actually have? If you listen, all the time you spend organising goals for yourself and achieving those goals, can I ask you a question? How much time do we actually spend achieving goals and planning to achieve the goals that God wants for us? And I said, I said to him, it made me sad. Because I don't see many Christians excited about the things of God as they are about the things of the world. And I think most Christians fail to see that the Bible sets us many goals. Many. You know, one of the steps here was writing your goal down. What do you want to achieve? Write it down. Which I think is an important thing. But you know something amazing? The goals have already been written down for us. The Bible gives us many goals to achieve. There are many. The problem is we don't even make a start with the first. Everything is sort of nebulous. Oh, what do I do? I don't, I've got no idea what, I'm, uh, what I have to do. I've got no idea about you know, doing this or doing that for God. So I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to put the effort in to train, to learn, to plan. But the Bible has many goals, and this applies to both men and women. Let me give you some, I want to give you three examples today, just to, just to whet your appetite a bit. I know there are some teachers here who have gone to college and, and you've studied either some degree or some, and you've specialised in a particular thing to teach other people. Whether you're a trainer, a teacher, whether you're someone who spends their time teaching other people, Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 with me, and I'd like to encourage you that the Bible says that we should all be teachers. Now, you may not like teaching as a profession. You might think teachers get way too many holidays. <laughs> but the, the point is, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 says this, for when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and to become such as have need of milk and not a strong meat. When you ought to be teachers. So Paul's saying there's a transition that's supposed to take place. 
There's a transition which is meant to bring you from drinking milk to eating meat. From being a student to being a teacher. There is an expectation God has of every one of his children that they don't stay students for their entire lives, but they actually become teachers. Now, did you know that about yourself? Did you know that God expects you to become a teacher? Is that a goal that you've set for yourselves? You might say, hang on a sec, isn't that just for pastors and for those bright people with all this knowledge? No, because God expects you to have knowledge too. God wants every one of his children to become teachers. So the question I have, if this is true for you and for me, the question I have is, have I set myself a goal to become the very best teacher that I can be for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you set yourself that goal? And if it's true, if you are convinced of that today, the next question should be for yourself is, how do I become a good teacher? How do I become a teacher for God? Isn't it? Isn't it the obvious next question? What other scripture verses or passages are there that might explain how I become a teacher? How long will I give myself to achieve this goal? Do I give myself a year? Two years? Three years to become a teacher for God? Who does God want me to teach? Who, who can I help with once I've actually mastered this thing that God wants me to become a teacher? Who can I teach? Who can I benefit with my teaching? Who can I look to to help me become a teacher? Do you understand? The same question that this guy was telling about reaching your goals from an earthly point of view, they've just ripped out of the Bible anyway. They've ripped half of those things out of the Bible. Because most of the Bible teaches us that we need to have a, a particular goal. It tells us there's a pathway to get there. It tells us to have self-discipline in order to do it. It tells us that God has given us pastors and teachers and preachers and all these people and deacons and like that who we can lean on to help us achieve those goals. The problem is that most of us don't have any goals at all. And we're too afraid to get God make goals for ourselves. Let me ask you another example. Let me show you another example. Prayer. Turn to First Titus. Oh, sorry, First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Says, I exhort you... Therefore, in verse 1, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So first of all, he says that we are to make supplications, prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks. That's your four aspects of what we call prayer. In verse 8. Drop in the verse 8. So the command here is, he says here, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. God expects us to pray. Every one of us to be people of prayer. And his disciples, when, when his disciples were walking around with him, they said to him, Jesus, teach us to pray. We want to know how to pray like you pray. They probably heard him praying when he was by himself and they'd probably listen in to say, how does this guy pray? I want to find out. 
because I want to be able to pray like him. And so they went to him with, at, at a specific time in Matthew chapter 6, and they said, teach us to pray. And he says, and after this manner, therefore pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus taught them how to pray. And there are ways of, the Bible tells, tells us ways of not, how not to pray. So, for example, in verse 7 in, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. So the Bible has a lot to say about prayer, has a lot to say about what to do, when to do it, how to do it, what the purpose of it is, and, 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 and what the benefits of it are. Question, have I set myself a goal to pray? What does God say that my prayer life should look like? Do I know that? How often should I pray? Who and what should I be praying for? What does God promise me through prayer? Who can help me to be a better prayer? How can I keep track of my prayers? How can I glorify God through these prayers? How can I be or become the best prayer in my church? What do I have to do? What sacrifices do I have to make to get there? Because if I'm single-eyed about being the best prayer there possibly is because God calls me to be that, then what will I be willing to give up? Imagine now that you are the best prayer warrior in our church. Imagine that for yourself. What does that look like? What would that mean for the people around you? If you were a fantastic prayer, and when you prayed, you were so confident with your prayers that God answered them, and, and you had this intimate relationship with God because you spoke to him on that level, on a regular basis, how would you be able to influence other people in a good way? What would it mean for the people around you? What would it mean for the people that, that you're praying for? How... Can you be, and I be, a leader when it comes to prayer? Is that a goal? Of course it is. It's a goal. And finally, I'll give you one more. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. So we've had being a teacher, being a prayer warrior, person who is, who is a fantastic prayer. Now I'm going to give you the big one. The one that automatically you're going to say, hang on a sec, nah. This is unrealistic. You can't ask me to be this. Because Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, Be ye therefore pretty good. Pretty good? You got pretty good there? <coughs> be ye therefore perfect. Even, even as... Your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Be like him. <laughs> does this command have an expectation built into it? Of course it does. Jesus says, you are to strive to be perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But what, what do most, how do most Christians react to this particular verse? You give it before you even start, don't you? It's, it's typical. It's, it's standard. Perfect. I can't even... 
How do I even start to be perfect? Look at me. I'm a complete mess. How do I go from here to, to perfection? So the, the first thing the flesh tells us is you can't get there. Don't worry about it. You can't, you can't achieve that. That's an unreasonable expectation of you. Don't go there. And the devil repeats that message to us. So what we do to react to that is we don't try at all. We don't strive for that because we say it's unreasonable. But if you look at the Bible, if you look at the New Testament, it actually tells us multiple times to be perfect. Not that perfection gets into heaven. See, this is not, this is not a race that we, we try to win and if we don't get to that perfect state, then we fail and we go to hell. This is not that. This is now that we're saved, God says, I've given you everything you need to be that way. Now I want you to push with all of your might to get there. And the Apostle Paul did that very thing. Paul knew deep down in his heart he was striving for this very thing. And he was so confident that he was getting there, right? He didn't give up. He said he continued to strive for it. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now how is that for confidence? You're not sure what profession looks like? You're a bit confused? Look at what I'm doing. How's that? Now, most of us would say, that's arrogant. Follow him. Exactly. He was so confident with what he was doing. He knew that he was on the right track. He knew what God was doing in his life. That he said to everyone else, you're struggling? Just look at what I'm doing. Start to follow me. And I'm following Jesus, and eventually you'll, you'll be focused on the same thing as well. Imitate me. This is what we've all been called to. We should all have the confidence to say to one another, are you struggling in that area? Watch what I, can, watch what I do. Are you struggling to pray? I'll, I'll help you. I'll guide you. I'll, I'll give you what I know. Do we do that with ourselves? Or do we offer the excuse always, oh, no, no, I'm no good. I'm telling you now that if you keep on saying to yourself you are no good, that you have nothing to offer, do you know where that's coming from? This constant beating down of ourselves, that we are sinners and there's nothing good in us and all sort of stuff, is garbage. Because the Bible says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if he's in you indeed, why do you continue to neglect he who is in you and look to yourself, the old you? And say, oh, look at me. The old me is so bad. Of course it's bad. The old you is bad. There's nothing good in the old you. But the new you is attached to him. And because of him, there is good in you. So never use your flesh as an excuse to fail the things of God. Start the race today. Don't use it as an excuse. Don't use our weaknesses as an excuse to say, I'm not even going to get up the blocks here. And I'm just going to go and sit on the bench for a little while because I've got a headache. Do not allow the devil to convince you otherwise. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to reinforce this particular thing a bit more because this perfection thing looks like it's an unreasonable request. But why would God ask it so many times of us? Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Finally, brethren, 
Verse 11. Farewell. He's saying goodbye in his letter. Look at the first thing he says to them. Be what? Perfect. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. How can I become perfect according to God's word, according to his will? What is holding me back from reaching perfection? Do I have that as a goal for myself? Am I willing to forsake and sacrifice things in my life to get there? Am I willing to give up as much as Jesus gave up for me? What have I given up in comparison to him? Does it match? So the question is, and Galatians verse, chapter 3 verse 3 gives us a bit of indication of how. So look at, actually turn with me there, Galatians chapter 3 verse 3. It says in Galatians, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So how do you become perfect according to God? It's in the spirit. It's by allowing God's spirit to actually lead you to that, to push you, to drive you to that. We must rely on the spirit of God for this. Understand that, like the Bible says, he who is in you is greater. So relying on him will lead us to perfection. Will you get there? That's up to God. No, it's up to yourself. Turn with me to one more passage. For this, for this particular topic. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible tells us another method that we should use to help us to get and strive for this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Now look what it says here. It says, All scripture all right, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For what purpose, Lord? That the man of God may be pretty good, halfway there. No, be perfect. That the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished with unto all good works. In other words, having a house, a perfect house has the right furniture in it. That we're thoroughly furnished with all the right things to make, to fill the house that he is living in. So my question and challenge to you today is, have we set ourselves a goal to be perfect? Have we set it? It doesn't mean that when you reach perfection, I'm going to say, oh, look, I'm perfect, everyone. Look at me. No, because perfection actually doesn't mean that at all. Perfection actually means that you've submitted yourself to such an extent before God. You've humbled yourself to so, such a point. And you've accepted and obeyed to such a degree that your life is completely His. Completely. And no one else has strings on you. No one else can pull you back. And you are in such unison with God that whatever you do, you know is according to His will. That's perfection. Does it mean that you never make a mistake? Well, I don't know. Maybe you may never make a mistake. I don't, I don't want to give you any excuse for, for making mistakes or sinning. But we should all be striving. We should all be pushing as hard as we possibly can. So my question to you is, 
have you that as a goal in your life? What effort have you made toward this? Or have we used an excuse to say, too hard, not going to go there? If we never try, you'll never fail. I'll give you that much. If you never try, you'll never fail. And you'll never let yourself down. Maybe that's what the devil wants from you. Don't, use, don't let the devil make an excuse. When an athlete prepares themselves for an Olympic or for the Olympics, they don't say, oh, I better not swim three hours a day like everyone else is. It's a bit too hard. I prefer my latte in the morning. I prefer to get up a bit later on. I prefer to, you know what I mean, there could be a lot of other things that I'm doing. They don't give an excuse. If you're going to win gold, you have to actually put the effort in. You have to sacrifice things in your life. So let me ask you, whether it's being a teacher for the Lord, whether it's praying for God or to God, whether it's becoming perfect, let me ask you, is your attitude toward this like the Apostle Paul who says, know you not that they which run a race, run all, but one receiveth the prize? So what's the purpose, Paul? Run that you may obtain. Run to win. Don't run to lose. And don't sit this one out because there's only one race here. There's only one chance you get. Most athletes only get one chance of going to Olympics that, that happen every four years, correct? If they go into two, they're pretty lucky. Most people only get one shot at this and we only get one shot. Don't waste it. Don't throw the shot away because there's an eternity to live after this. We should always believe that we can win because we're with Jesus and Jesus is with us. The apostles believed it because it was he who gave them power and authority over devils and overcoming all sicknesses and diseases. And this is the thing that we need to be convinced of in our mind. The power doesn't come from inside me. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And when he called... Unto him, his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits. Any power, grace, and whatever else it is that I need to achieve my goal, he gives it. It's not me. We don't have any inherent power within ourselves. You know, the New Age and Eastern religions may tell you, and the New, new Age is not really New Age anyway, it's an old corruption that just keeps on popping its head up, like whack-a-mole. You've got to keep on hitting it on the head. Haven't you ever played whack-a-mole before? You guys have never been to like a carnival or something like that? Like, you know those, those machines where you, they give you a big mallet about this big? And there's a thing, there's a machine that the, the little, whatever they are, pop their heads up and you have to hit them on the head before the next one pops up. And so you're hitting, you've never seen those before? But they just keep popping their heads up. <laughs> it's a bit like whack-a-mole, all right? It just keeps on popping up its head. That... And these, these, whether it's an Eastern religion or whatever it is, I said that they, they teach you the same thing, that there's somehow, there's some inherent power within us. There's some sort of godlike abilities that they're just, they're just there lying dormant. And if you have the special knowledge and you have the special key to unlock this potential that's in you, you too can be like God. You too can transform the world around you. You too can tap into this amazing ability. Truly, this is an absolute load of rubbish. 
People have been trying to tap into this ridiculous notion for many, many years. It doesn't exist. We don't speak reality, reality into existence by speaking like some uh, churches are teaching now. And this is the same lie that's been going on for ages and ages. That there's something somehow wonderful and magical in us. We are actually really, really good people. But you know something? It's just that we recognise it. If we just realised, if we just realised and recognised how wonderful and beautiful we are on the inside, you know, our world would transform into a beautiful paradise. What an absolute load of rubbish. What an absolute load of rubbish. You know, they say we are becoming more and more advanced as a civilization. You know, we're, we're progressing and evolving upwards and ever onwards. What an absolute load of rubbish. The more we learn, the more technologically advanced we become, the better we are at killing each other. The more freedoms we have, the more we, we, we do evil to each other. How much corruption do we see around the world? You know, we have eight, seven billion people on this planet. Seven billion people, all right? How much corruption is in this planet? How many murders and how many, how many people taking advantage of each other? Are people so blind that they don't see what the reality of the world is? That when you, when you release realistically what's in man, you see nothing good in there. What you see is absolute depravity and sin and selfishness and the things that we learnt little children are like. You know, when little kids start, start finding their feet and they start realising they want things and they can manipulate their parents to get what they want. They're just giving you a little bit of a taste of what mankind is really like. But things only go downhill from there because we then learn to become even worse in our lives as we, as we get older. We see the corruption on our, on our televisions. We see the corruption in every level of society from the top all the way down to the bottom. Whether you're poor or rich or whatever, I don't care what people tell me. It's absolute garbage to think that there is absolute, there's some wonderful thing in man and all we have to do is find out how to, how to get it out. It isn't there. Now, one, one, one fellow I, I heard him many years ago said, what about if we, what, what about if we, you know, it says that people are always trying to look inside them to find something good. He goes, but what about, what, what if we're like onions? An onion is just made of, the, of, a, of a series of layers. So as you, as you keep ripping off one layer after another, after another, after another, you get there and there's nothing there. <laughs> and imagine the tears that are going to take place too when you try to you go down there. Because I tell you, you want to cry? You really want to cry? Spend time looking in your life. Spend time digging into your own heart. Honestly. Do you actually expect to find good stuff in there? Who expects to find wonderful things when they dig deeper into their heart? The deeper they dig, I'm telling you, it's not gold down there. It's not gold. It's worse. It's bad. That's why people who spend most of their lives introspecting and, 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 and looking into their lives and, oh, let me find out what I'm really like. That's not good. The God, God gave us the word of God like a mirror. Huh? And that mirror, every time you look in that mirror, let me ask you, do you see a beautiful thing there? No. Every time you read the word of God, you get convicted of sin. There's a reason for that. The devil's been telling the same lie throughout all the ages that, you know, um, if you acquire some special type of knowledge, you can be like God. 
No? That's what he said to Adam and Eve. If you have this fruit, God doesn't want you to be like him, but if you have this fruit, you can be just like him. Amen. And he doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to, to, to be like him. So they mistrusted God and they trusted a snake. And this is the same thing that is reverberating in our culture over and over and over again. It's just told in different ways. It's just, just, just expressed in, in slightly different ways. ways. It's, it's inspired countless millions and millions and billions of people to believe this garbage. And it's caused people to go conquering worlds like Alexander the Great and, and all, these, all these people who, who thought within themselves, I'm like a god, I can influence people. And I, What do you think most of these conquerors, dictators or whatever, where do they get this inspiration from? It's straight from the devil and the same lie that he gave Adam and Eve. And they manipulate the weak. They take advantage of the innocent. It's raised up people like Hitler and Stalin and have killed millions and millions of, of people. It's sending millions of people to hell every year. It stokes the foolish pride of man, which God says will send you to hell because it stops you from actually humbling yourself before God. This is the demonic message that has infiltrated the church, believe it or not. The countless books you see in places like Kurong and Word and those sort of things from the latest teachers that are out there all have a simple and, and similar type of message that Christianity is there to help you reach your potential. What potential? What potential do I have within me? The only potential that's there is what God has put in there, and that's in Jesus Christ. He has the ultimate potential. I have no potential, and I have no potential within me. I'm just blessed to be actually called his child. There's this thing that, that, that's been prevalent now through the last, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years, a prosperity gospel, that God wants us to be rich, that we can name it and claim it, that we can speak reality into existence simply by saying it. More garbage coming from the same place. The difference is that it's the strength of Jesus which is made perfect in my weakness. When I, when I accept my weakness, all of a sudden Jesus shows himself to be strong. It's his grace which is sufficient for us, not our own grace. The only thing that, can, the only thing that we can bring to this, this table is weakness and submission in order for his power to be displayed. The disciples have his power within them? No. Do we have his power? No. But God gives the grace and the power. Is there a purpose to this power? Undoubtedly, yes. Because every time God gives a gift in the Bible, every time he gives power and grace, it's for a purpose, not to spend on ourselves, but to actually glorify him and to reach people, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, to bring them in, to point them to Christ and say, he's the one we have to go to. This is what we've been called to. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Because it says there, freely you have received, freely give. We didn't earn this thing. We didn't deserve this thing. But nonetheless, he gave it to us. But we are nothing without him. In him, we are everything. Everything we are. Only because he calls us that. If you don't have Christ this morning, then you are lost and you need to be rescued. And Jesus has already done that unbelievable work for you on that cross. 
And he can give you what you need the very most. He can give you life, eternal life. He can give you love, purpose. He can give you a genuine family. You ever wondered why he lists the names of the apostles here? I've read them out twice already for you. Why does he list the names? It's because he knows and loves every one of them as individuals. You ever wonder why God lists all the names in the Old Testament and sometimes we read through those names and so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. We go, God, why are you giving me all these names? You know why? And that tells you more than anything else that God loves individuals. And names are important to him. With God, with the real God, not with the fake gods that are out there, you never lose your individuality. You never lose who you are. There is no chance that you will be lost in the middle of millions and trillions or whoever it is. You will not be lost in the collective. Your name is known by him. He knows you personally. And your name and you are very important to him. Have you ever been ever been to a graduating ceremony for a, a student or, or a high school student or some other type of ceremony where, you know, where the family goes there and there's an award or a ceremony where they present them with a plaque or a, or a, a certificate or something like that? You know what's, what's beautiful about that? Because they've achieved whatever they've set their goal. They've achieved it. They've, they've done it. They've, they've run that race. They've gotten what they've set their minds to do. Have you ever noticed the ones with the greatest smiles on their faces? are the parents and the teachers that have worked with them. They've like got this massive smile on their face. Now, why have they got the biggest smile? Probably even more than the student themselves. It's because in their hearts they're rejoicing because they've seen, this, they've seen the effort and they've supported that effort the whole way through. I know, I know with teachers, I mean, you, you've worked with a student maybe a whole year and maybe that student's really struggled along the way, but at the end, when they achieve what you didn't think they could achieve, maybe at the beginning, don't tell me there's no rejoicing in your heart. There is. And it's the same thing for parents. The love that they've shown, the effort that they've given, or that they've, they've displayed, has been rewarded. And you rejoice with that person's victory. And I believe here the Lord lists these names because the Lord is rejoicing with them. They graduated. They're ready to be sent. So he lists their names and he says, these are the 12 that I think are ready to be sent into this world. Do you know he keeps a record of all names of those that he's bought with his blood? Do you know he has a book? Those ones who have said, yes, I'll trust you, and I'll, wherever you go, I will follow you. In Revelation 21, we're closing up now. In verse 27, it says, And then there shall no wise enter into anything, and this is the new, the new heaven, that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wouldn't you also want your name to be in that book? You know, there's rejoicing. And the Bible says that, that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repenteth. Maybe every time Jesus writes a new name in that book, he goes, have a look at that, another one. 
and all the angels rejoice. So my challenge to you today is, if your name isn't in that book, if you don't know if it's there or not, there is no better place to have your name recorded than there. Make that your first goal in your life, to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because if your name is in there, you are safe. You are safe in his arms and he will never, ever let you down. And if your name is already there, let me ask you another question. Is your goal to be the best person you possibly can be in that book? Are you aiming to please him as much as you can? Are you aiming that one day when you stand before him, he'll say these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. God bless you. Thank you.